0: Welcome to Let's Talk Micro. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Let's Talk Micro. I hope you had a great week. Before we get started, like always, please remember that Let's Talk Micro is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, Stitcher, TuneIn Radio, Overcast, Pandora. Wherever you get your podcasts, you can find Let's Talk Micro. I am also on Instagram as let no apostrophe, and on Twitter, as let Talk Micro 1. So go ahead and follow. I like to post pictures of organisms. So on the last episode, I started discussing Dania's interview. If you haven't listened to that episode, it's episode 18, Talking Micro with Dania Castellas. It was a great episode. Like I mentioned, Dania is also a medical laboratory scientist, like I am, and she, her work is a little bit different in the sense that she doesn't get clinical samples. She tests the samples that are going to be used that are for organ donors. So before that organ goes into a patient, she performs the testing and makes sure, make sh- sure that there is no bacteria. Very important work, definitely. So, we start, you know, I'll start comparing what she does versus what we do in the clinical microbiology setting. So, they start with placing the sample in thio, whereas we set up a thio in certain cultures alongside media. On our side, it's more of a backup, but in her process, it is the primary agar. So, you see, whereas we play our sample on blood, chocolate, PEA, McConkie, and then we do the thio depending on the source, like I mentioned, like surgical sources, body fluids, CSF. So in her case, that's the agar, the thio. And then in the clinical lab, we perform a gram stain when you receive the sample of certain cultures, you know, like your wound cultures, asses, wound culture with anaerobes. However, in her process, a gram stain is performed If there is growth on the thio. So, then that brought us to episode 19, right, which I talked about thioglycolate or thio. So, it is liquid media. And I mentioned the ingredients it has casein, soy broth, and glucose. So, this is enrichment for the growth of most microorganisms. And you have different versions out there with different ingredients. Some have vitamin K1 and heme. Uh, vitamin K1 is needed for some anaerobes to grow, such as some strains of Prevotella. And then you have hemin, which is needed for the growth of many organisms. And, of course, the broth has thioglycolate. And I mentioned that it acts as a, as a reducing agent, which helps create an anaerobic environment. So thio pretty much grows all organisms and we correlate it with the growth on the plates. Uh, for example, so if you have growth, we perform a smear, and if we see a different morphology than what's growing in our culture, then we play the thio anaerobic and anaerobic blood agar. So let's say that your original culture is growing staphylococcus aureus. You do a thio, maybe you see GnRs, you see a GPR, or you see a gram-positive in chains. So that's different from what's growing in your culture. So you go ahead and plate it on an aerobic and anaerobic blood artery. So, But always have to keep in mind that if your plates do not grow anything, consider some things. Maybe your organism is not viable, one. Or the organism has growth requirements, for example, hemophilus. The broth, uh, you know, you typically keep it for five days if there is no growth. And some are kept from 14 days, I can mention, to rule out cutie bacterium. Very typical, you get it from surgeons uh, when you have a culture from like the knee, some synovial fluid. They'll give you a call and say, hey, hold it for 14 days. Or another surgical sample from that area. They'll call the lab and say, hold it for 14 days until you rule out cutie bacterium so just keep those things in mind and then of course like i also mentioned not only if you see a different morphology on your on your thiosmere you also will do the aerobic and anaerobic plate if you see growth on your thio and nothing is growing on your original culture and you will you have to be I mentioned that you, when you report it, and this is the case, for example, that it only grew in the thio but not in the original culture, you reported like something along the lines of from liquid media only. That way you're, not, you're telling the provider that that is not from the primary culture. So it will go out as, let's say, um, E. coli from liquid media, no growth on primary plates. So something like that. So those are some scenarios where you so what to do with the thio, right? It's cloudy, you make a gram stain, you see a different organism from what's on your culture, or there is growth, there's an organism growing, you see you see it on your gram stain, and it's not grow there's no growth on the primary culture. So in those two cases, you perform and, you know, uh, play your thio on an aerobic and anaerobic blood plate. Also, sometimes, you know, maybe if you think that it's cloudy and you don't see anything on the gram stain, you can do the aerobic and anaerobic blood plate as well. But then, depending on that, I mean, too much of a uh, manipulation of that sample sometimes might induce to, you know, might lead to contamination. So we have to be careful. Like always, when we are working these cultures. We try to only open them and work them up, and so try to handle it, not that many times, right? Only as necessary as it is for us to perform our work. We don't want to introduce any type of contamination. So in, uh, in Dania's interview, she talked about her process for identifying anaerobes. So that brings us actually to today's episode. Right? So we're talking about anaerobes. So let's talk about anaerobes, right? So let me introduce you to anaerobes. So what's an anaerobe? Well, it is an organism that does not grow in the presence of oxygen. And you have various degrees of growing and oxygen tolerance in organisms. You have your strict aerobes, which only grow in the presence of oxygen. Then you have microaerophilic organisms, they grow in a reduced oxygen environment. There are aerotolerant organisms. Now, they can grow in an oxygen environment, but they grow better in anaerobic conditions. A good example is actinomycins. Actinomyces, sorry. It is a gram-positive rod that grows weakly aerobically, but much better anaerobically. And it's, it's very, those of you that work in the bench in microbiology, you can relate to this. Sometimes, you know, with the actinomyces cultures, like you put them in a thio, you incubate like a CDC plate anaerobically, and it grows much better. You know, you can get maybe some, like some weak aerobic growth, but if you, you if you have some growth aerobically, and then you subculture that organism to like a blood plate, and you incubate it anaerobically, it will come out so much stronger. Especially if you if you place it on a platform like the anoxomat which I will talk more about that later on, that uh, you know it induces an anaerobic environment relatively fast, so that organism will grow so much stronger. So and then we have the facultative anaerobes; they are capable of growing on an oxygen and anaerobic environments. Some great examples are Staph, Strep and the enterobacteriales. They're a facultative anaerobes. So, they will definitely, and those of you that work in the bench, you, you, know, you can see. The morphologies, they look different versus, you know, when you have your classic E. coli or, your, you know, your classic staph aureus, those nice large beta hemolytic colonies on blood auger. And then, when you have your blood culture plate that's incubated anaerobically, there is growth but it doesn't look as beautiful as it looked aerobically. So the organism can grow, definitely anaerobically. But it's just like I like to say to my students, you know, it will grow. But it's like, oh, I really don't like it. So I do what I have to do and, and I grow. but So it doesn't look as good as it will, it will do aerobically. So that is why uh, when I go over anaerobic media. That when you are plating anaerobes, you have to use multiple agar with selective properties. So, plating your sample on a blood agar and incubating it anaerobically is not very helpful because most organisms that grow aerobically are facultative anaerobes. So, if you're trying to rule anaerobes on a culture and all you do is a blood plate, I mean, you might. Get your anaerobe, let's say there's not a lot of aerobic growth, but if there's like a lot of flora, if there's staph, enterobacterialis, you're going to have a hard time isolating that anaerobe. So you need to use multiple plates. And it varies with the facilities, but there's typically a combination, maybe two to three plates that you incubate when you you are trying to rule out anaerobes. Okay, so as I am talking about this, right? So I mentioned that there are certain levels of oxygen tolerance, right? So you have um aerotolerant, tolerant, um, facultative anaerobes, and obligate anaerobes. So the strict anaerobes, the obligate anaerobes, they do not grow in the presence of oxygen. And why do you think this is? So before I answer that... I'm using some technical terms, some technical definitions. So always remember I like to use Bailey and Scott's Diagnostic Microbiology. It's a great source. They have no affiliation with this podcast. And I also like to use the, the ASM books where they actually the clinical procedures, they describe the clinical procedures. It's a great reference. And this is what most laboratories you know, they use, they are guided by on what media to use, how to work up a culture based on a source, what organisms to look for, what needs to be ruled out. So they basically, they, they play a huge part in the procedures that we use in clinical microbiology labs. They have no affiliation to this podcast. So why do you think that the strict anaerobes that do not grow in the presence of oxygen? Well, they lack uh, superoxide dismutase and catalase, which are enzymes required to break down reactive oxygen produced during respiration or aerobic metabolism. So oxygen has a high affinity for organic compounds containing nitrogen, hydrogen, carbon, and sulfur, which interfere with normal biological activity. So they can protect themselves against this. So they need an absence of oxygen to grow. So definitely you have to make sure that, and we'll talk about some systems that uh, achieve an anaerobic environment. Some are better than others, and they work, but you have to keep some factors in mind, you know, the size of the lab, because sometimes some methods are more cost-effective than others. Keep in mind your volume. But you definitely have to, in order to recover these organisms, you have to induce an anaerobic environment. All the way from like the old school method with the candle jar to eliminate the oxygen, to some great methods that achieve an anaerobic environment within like 10 minutes. And of course, these organisms, some are more sensitive than others. For example, if you're subculturing an anaerobe. Sometimes, you know, you can actually, just to see what happens, I have waited like an hour before putting it, putting the plate in an in a anaerobic environment, and it still grows. But that's not the case for all of them. But the key point to this is like, they cannot survive in the presence of oxygen, they cannot protect themselves, you know, against all these organic compounds. So they need to be in the absence of oxygen and anaerobes. They're actually, they're a significant component of the human flora. So just like we have, you know, we have in our bodies, we have many organisms that they're there actually. And by having them, it protects us from having, you know, from other organisms that can cause disease, gaining access to our, our bodies. Or sometimes, you know, they keep those same organisms that can cause disease at low levels because it's crowded with the good flora. A great example is, for example, on, the, on our genital, our, the genital flora, that if it starts being reduced, then yeast, like, you know, like female gets, they get yeast infections. Um, if those levels of normal flora, they start reducing. That's why they always stay induced, like, you know, eat the yogurt and the probiotics so you can grow those healthy healthy flora levels. The same with our gut. We want to make sure that we keep those healthy levels of flora. So we have bacteria in our skin. We have bacteria in our intestinal system. And over there, they're just normal. They don't cause any problems. So we have anaerobes as part of our human flora. In fact, most infection-causing anaerobic bacteria, they are part of our human flora. However, not all of them are part of it. We anaerobes, you find some in the soil and environment. When I talk about, the, about this, there are two terms, endogenous and exogenous. Endogenous are those that are part of the human flora, and exogenous are those that are not part of the, the normal flora. You know, they are environmental, they are found in the environment, soil. So when you have most anaerobic um, infections, those include a mixture of anaerobic and facultative anaerobic organisms. And this is very true when you're working on the bench, those of you that work as clinical microbiologists. So typically you have on an infection, you have, you can get sometimes, you know, like two or three enterobacteriales and then... You can have an anaerobe, like, like a Prevotella, like a Bacteroides. So it's typically a mixture of, of organisms. Especially, yeah, when you get to the, some sources, like sometimes, you know, like, a, this is typically seen on the, like, abdominal sources, 2-3 Enterobacteriales. And then sometimes you can also have, in addition to that, uh, you can get some, like, non-fermenting gram-negative rods, like Pseudomonas. Uh, stem trofomonas. So you have a combination, definitely multiple organisms. And this is not only true for um, like abdominal sources, like other I have when you see like sometimes some some wounds, especially on diabetic patients, you get a lot of infection, you can have an anaerobe, and you can have two, three enterobacteriales, along with sometimes, you know, you can have a staph, and then you can have like a pseudomonas, denotrophomonas, acinetobacter, alkaligenes, all these combined in one culture. So at that point in time, of course, you know, you follow the guidelines, your, the procedures dictated in your lab. But when you have this many organisms, typically depending on the source, you will mix your enterobacteriales and always work up your staff, of course. Uh, You will work up your non fermenting gram-negative rods Beta strep and when I mean work up is as far as doing like a full ID and susceptibilities and then the others you will mix them and Then the physician decides if they want to work it up or not. They will request it but that's typically That's typically what how it goes in the lab. I mean you have to keep in mind that Providing that much information, I mean, might not do as good as, what is it going to do for the patient if you provide eight or nine different sets of susceptibilities? That's why you, depending on the protocol, you will work up, you know, like staff, you're concerned with the MRSA, Your are non-fermenting gram-negative rods. They tend to be more resistant than your enterobacteriales. So that's why you need to work them up. And since anaerobes are part of the normal flora, they can contaminate specimens. And once again, as I, you I see this, especially on the genital, you know, vaginal flora, there, there are anaerobes. And then of course, on the abdominal enteric system, there are anaerobes. So typically you will, you will see them when you have these sources, like I mentioned, you know, abdominal culture, two or three organisms, and in addition, one or two anaerobes. And this depends on the facility, but sometimes, you know, if you have more than one anaerobe, you will report your culture as mixed anaerobes. Other facilities will actually uh, tell you to go ahead and do ID on susceptibilities. No, sorry, not susceptibilities, do an ID on it. So that varies with the, with the lab. So what are some examples of anaerobes? Well, you have Bacteroides, you have Probotella, and these are gram-negative rods. You have uh, Fusobacterium. As far as gram-positive rods, you have Clostridium, right? Um, definitely some, some classic ones. So you have Clostridium difficile. In the medical community, everyone is pretty much aware of it. Um, and then you have Clostridium perfringens. Which is the the organism that causes the gas gangrene, and it has a double zone of beta hemolysis. Which I mentioned this before, but I like to talk about it. I don't know. As microbiologists, when we see an organism that we haven't seen before, we get excited, and that's because we like this. You know, we want to see the organism so we get familiar with them, and then we can make sure that we don't miss them. And we do the best job we can when we are reading cultures. Of course, you know, we do this for the patients. And seeing an organism that's bad for a patient, it's it's I mean it's 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 sad. And we want people to be healthy. But from the microbiologist side, when we see them, we get excited because it's just something that we might have seen in a textbook. Then again, keep in mind that there, there's a line in this. Because I will never get to be excited to see an anthrax. I hope that I never get to. Um, that's a very you know, very dangerous organism. But when we see some organisms, we definitely get excited. So when I saw my, my Clostridium perfringens, I was excited. I'm like, oh, first time I see it, I see that double zone of beta hemolysis, I recognize it. And, you know, I was, that part of the microbiologist the nerd in me was excited. And then, of course, I saw the patient's history and amputations, and that's, that's the sad part. Those are some examples of anaerobes. When you talk about anaerobes, some you will see definitely more than others, just like with aerobic bacteria. Like take, for example, bacteroides. Sometimes, you know, that one is referred to as the E. coli of the anaerobe world, because you will see it in a, in a lot of cultures. Bacteroides and Prevotella, they're very prevalent. So just like you will see an E. coli a hundred times on the bench, um, you know, over, over, over again, when you are working with anaerobes, you will definitely see a lot of bacteroides over and over again. And there's like a group of, them. it's called the bacteroides fragilis group, but then we will talk more about the organisms themselves down the line, some other episodes. Today, is just an overview and definitely Clostridium difficile, which is actually now called Clostridioides difficile, is definitely not part of the human flora. So to take from this, these organisms, they do not, they cannot grow in the presence of oxygen. It is harmful to them. So when you are incubating them in order to make sure you recover them from a culture, you have to make sure that you provide an anaerobic environment where you uh, reduce the oxygen, you eliminate it. That way this organism can grow. And that my dear audience is the end of this episode. I hope you enjoy hearing about anaerobes, as always I enjoy talking about them. Remember, if you haven't checked out the interview with Dania Casellas, go ahead and do so, and then check the previous episode about thioglycolate, some great information. Please remember to always you know, stay motivated, continue bringing that passion. I cannot say this enough, such a great job that we do such an amazing job working with this microorganisms and making sure we help our patients is so rewarding so please stay motivated stay safe and of course continue talking micro go ahead and have a great week until the next time